This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. A disclaimer to start with, um, I advertised a certain order of topics, and then the Holy Spirit moved on me, so we rearranged. So we're actually finishing the Day of Atonement, not the candlestick and all that stuff. We did that already. So uh, we're in Day of Atonement Part 2. But figuring that we would have some extras due to the Sabbath overflow, um, I want to do a quick review. And for those just coming in, right at the center junction, there's some note-taking materials if you wish. Somebody just got that started, I think, but if you want to double-check it. Okay. We were self-sufficient. Thank you for checking. Okay. I have, first of all, proposed that very often we overcomplicate the sanctuary into a bunch of symbolism, and you say, what does this have to do with real life? And so what I've done is say, wait a minute, the sanctuary reveals the protocol for how to approach God. And how many flowers and leaves are on the corner of a table really don't affect that approach. And so we want to focus on the central emphasis, and this is an approach that you can do in your prayer life. And so the sinner approaches God certain ways, and our premise was that God did this to make approaching God safe and possible so that we're not destroyed by his glory. So it's a loving God who is trying to figure out how to approach us and how we can approach him without being destroyed by his glory in the process due to our sinfulness. And I illustrated that with the bubble boy who had no immune system, had to live in a plastic bubble and his mother can't touch him and, and so forth. And someone died at age 12. Um, we had to put him in the bubble to save him, but she literally can't kiss, touch, hug her own son because she'll infect him with something and he'll die. And that's kind of the problem God has, you know. So how can we get contact without destroying the one I love? This is the protocol for it. And when Nadab and Abihu did not follow that protocol, they became quite literally their own burnt offering. Not because God is mean, but he had to act in judgment on sin. And so the protocol started at the gate. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. But it's not just any thanksgiving and praise because Cain was praising the Lord, right? He was giving a thank offering to God. You're a good guy, God, love you, you're wonderful. But his praise had no acknowledgement of his sin and his problem. And so we need to come thanking God that he's made a way for us as sinners to safely approach him in addition to thanking him for our house and toothbrush and whatever else. We also then, by acknowledging our condition, are entering in a humble, contrite 
repentant response to God's invitation, not in a cherishing, argumentative, you know, et cetera, et cetera type of approach. And then we come to the altar where we confess and renounce sin. We say, take this off me. You take it on yourself, please, and free me from this so that we transfer sinner, sin from sinner to substitute. And now the sin is punished in the substitute. And then we continue our approach through a representative called the priest. And the major reason is that this part is in heaven and I can't get there. So if I'm going to approach God, I need someone to do it for me. Now, being a sinful priest on earth, he had to stop at the laver to wash up, but this brings about the theme of cleansing. So we have not only substitution, I want to renounce this sin, but Lord, I need you to clean me up, and the prayers for cleansing. And so we enter with thanksgiving and appropriate praise and so forth and so on. We confess our sins unto Christ, we're asking for cleansing, and as we're doing this, our high priest goes into the altar where he presents the evidence of his death for our sins and says the death, the penalty has been paid, and this person gave me their sin. They don't want it anymore. They want to be a new creature, and it's here where God pronounces forgiveness. So it's not when the sacrifice dies, it's when the priest presents it. Um, and so we can pray our way and believe that God has pronounced forgiveness because of Christ on that sin. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. And then we paused because while the priest is in here, we have two other pieces of furniture. The bread representing God's sustenance and our dependence upon God and we talk briefly about depending by faith in spite of how we feel, that we're a new creature and we have to rely on that promise even when we don't feel like we're a new creature. And you can go listen to the rest online because I gave some practical tools about resisting temptation. And then we need guidance. I can't find my own way. And the light comes from the pillar of fire, uh, the light of God's word, to guide us because we can't figure it out on our own. And that was our daily ministry of forgiveness and regeneration. And that ministry did not stop with the Day of Judgment. On the Day of Atonement, if you came under because you afflicted your soul, you said, oh, I got something I need to deal with, you could come and deal with it. I don't know if they interrupted the Day of Atonement service or what happened, but you could come and deal with it and still be under the forgiveness umbrella. So the ministry of forgiveness continues during the time of judgment. They overlap. So probation doesn't close and then the judgment starts, right? The judgment starts and we still have room to repent. Now, we believe in 1844, the approach has gone all the way in the act of the investigative judgment because the Day of Atonement, see, all year long, people are taking advantage of this basic protocol, right? But is it possible 
let's make it a calendar year for illustration, that you take advantage of this January through June and then fall away and stop confessing your sin and fall back. And so the Day of Atonement asked the question, who stuck with the program? Who gets to remain in the covenant community? Hence the idea of a judgment. Because you could, because remember, what was the penalty for not afflicting your soul? You were cut off from the congregation. What does that mean? It means you're thrown out into the wilderness with no community to protect you. Against lions and hyenas and bears and marauding tribes and whatever else is out there which basically in their mind is death. But the point is, you are now not part of the community. And the investigative judgment focuses on those who claim to be Christ's to say, will they remain part of the cosmic covenant community or have they not kept up with God's program of relationship and are in their own form of rebellion, feel free to come further forward. And so the Day of Atonement re reinforces that need to keep the daily process of cleansing and regeneration and forgiveness and renunciation going. And for those who just are walking in, there are some slips of paper if you want to take notes right up in, the, in front of the gentleman with the bag right there. So. so with that little review, and we've been in the Day of Atonement, I want to move to some aspects because very often I think we make the Day of Atonement very self-centered. It's all about me and how pure I am, and we forget that he who began the good work in you will finish it. Okay? We need to be asking him to forgive, to finish it, and part of that day of atonement experience is to say, Lord, I'm confident there's stuff I don't know about that you'd like me to address. Search me the, the hidden stuff, because I don't fear the God of the judgment I fear my ability to deceive myself that everything's okay when it's not. And so the Day of Atonement is where I'm saying, God, I'm afraid of my own self-deception. I need you to be showing me stuff I'm not aware of. So I don't fear the judgment process. I fear my self-deception. like Laodicea, that all is well when it ain't well. And so that's that Psalm 139 prayer. Now today I want to get into the good news side that takes it and moves it just from me to the more before men and angels. I recently, um, at our Christmas tree lighting at Southern, went down there in the evening after dark, and here was this quadcopter with the GoPro flying around with nice red and green lights underneath it so you can know which way is which. And so I was interested in that quadcopter because I fly a little radio control. And uh, 
So I went home that night and I googled the quadcopter drone, you know, etc. And I figured out what he was flying. Well, about an hour later, I said, you know, I need to order something from L.L. Bean for my wife's Christmas and have a ship to her mother's Maine. I go into the websites to start going to L.L. Bean and what starts popping up in the ads? Quadcopters with GoPros. Why? Because Google, etc., track your clicks, right? And they see what you click on and they say, oh, he's interested in this, that, or the other, and boom, they target the ads to you, right? And so Google or L.L. Bean or whoever, right, you start clicking shirts and suddenly we suggest this pair of pants or this tie or, you know, because they're tracking you, right? Every click, 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 click. Now, back in my days, back in the days of Noah when I was a boy, um, we had big privacy issues with that, right? But we've gotten used to it. And the fact of the matter is, pretty much now, NSA and anybody else, if you've got a smartphone or any kind of phone, pretty much can know where you are within about 10 feet, you know? But then, on a uh, news game show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I recently heard of a new step. Google is now trying to read your mind. Well, they're working on it. They are working on technology that will notice when you hover your mouse cursor over a link like I'm thinking about clicking here. And then you move away and say, I'm not going to click here. And they're going to be using hover technology to also help focus the ads that pop up. And so the joke is Google is on the edge of being able to read your mind. Google and others are keeping tabs. There's whole databases on each of us that they sell between the advertisers so they can target and craft how they want to sell their product to you. And there's enough science behind this that in certain ways they may know about, more about you than you know about you. And they're doing it not for your good, but for their profit. Now, the Bible says that God reads the mind and the heart, does he not? Does he read it like Google for his own benefit so he can lord it over and show how big and mighty and strong, or is he reading it for a greater benefit than himself, including ourselves? And I'd like to suggest it's the latter, and I'd like to suggest that the Day of Atonement brings three key blessings from God to man. Now again, I am assuming that we all are understanding that from an Adventist perspective, Day of Atonement is the equivalent of the judgment. And we kind of covered that last time. And so we're going to move into a lot of judgment language, understanding that we're equating this as Day of Atonement. Okay. The Feast of Trumpets starts our first blessing. In the Day of Atonement, 
The Day of Atonement was in the seventh month on the tenth day. It was preceded by the Feast of Trumpets, which was the seventh month, first day, nine days before. So just over a week. It was a festival Sabbath. If you remember, there were seven festival Sabbaths that whatever day of the week that festival falls on, you keep it the same as a seventh-day Sabbath. You don't work, etc., etc. But it moves, unlike the seventh-day Sabbath. These, these are Sabbaths by date, not by weekly cycle, the way Christmas moves around, okay? And so Feast of Trumpets is one of these seven. Day of Atonement was another one of the seven. And so nine days before the Day of Atonement, just over a week out, you have this day where everything stops. You keep it like a Sabbath, even though it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And it acts as a big speed bump in the road to say, stop, reorient, in just over a week, your destiny in the community is about to be decided. And so many see the Feast of Trumpets, this trumpet blast day, was the precursor that woke people, kind of jar their attention to remind them that the day of destiny was a week and two days away. That determines if you remain part of the covenant people of Israel. So we can already see the idea of a loving God not just surprising a judgment on us, but giving a warning in the Feast of Trumpets. And we can develop this a little bit more out of the story of Achan. Now I got a couple of students here, so I have to address them for a moment, because in class I tell them about a sermon I've preached at mcdonaldroad.org a few years ago. I entitled it, Oh My Achan Head. And I'm going to draw a little bit from that today, but not everything. So I'll, I'll let you know a little later what that's all about. But let's get the story. We know the story of Achan, right? The, um, they've captured, uh, destroyed Jericho. And they said, let's go up to Ai. So they said, it's little, you know. We can handle this one. So they head up to Ai. And they get smoked and 36 guys get killed. And Joshua's like, what is going on here? And he's crying out to the Lord, and the Lord says, what are you all upset about? You've got a problem in the camp that's blocking my blessing. And so Joshua is given then an announcement to make to the people of Israel. And we can read it here on the screen in Joshua 7.13 for those who click in later. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away devoted things. I should have highlighted the tomorrow there. I got it here. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by, by your tribes. And the tribe the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So, 
What's just happened here? We have a warning, right? Judgment's coming tomorrow in the morning. Here's the problem. Someone stole what we're not supposed to steal. Tomorrow we're going to have this process to find out who it is. And we're going to narrow it down to the man. It's announced. And so then, the next day, in the morning, they run the process. They cast the lots, and at the tribe, and they cast the lots, and the well, clan, and then the household, then the family, you know. Finally, Achan himself is identified. And Joshua says, tell us what you did. And he says, well, you're right, it's me. I took the Babylonian garment and the gold and da-da-da. Now let's stop the tape right there. First of all, I would argue that we have an investigative judgment right here in Scripture. It's all over the place, folks. It's God's style of judging. It starts in Genesis 3, where he asks questions and investigates before he pronounces judgment, right? It continues with the flood where it says, and God saw the wickedness of man, etc., etc. And when he saw, he then made a decision to do something about it. Investigation, judgment. And what's the point? See, we could go to Abraham and Sodom as well. God says to Abraham, I've heard this outrage coming up to me about Sodom, so I came down to look at it for myself. Investigation, right? Did God know what was going on in Sodom? Why does he have to come down and look? If he already knows. See, that's what we're addressing here. All right, by lot, God reveals it's taken. Why not just get it over with? Why? What happens if they punish Achan right now? based on a casting of a lot. What happens about a year later? The, Israeli, the Israelite equivalent of 60 Minutes gets on the case about this great injustice to Achan, Saint Achan, right? So the process doesn't stop here. Folks, Achan makes a great illustration of the three phases of judgment that we teach. Because what's the next two phases? I see some theology majors here. Pop quiz, right? What's the first stage is investigative judgment. What's the second stage? All these pastors who like to talk and now they won't say a word. The millennial judgment took a lay person to bail them out, right? And then the third stage? The white throne, yeah. Why these three stages? It's all related to before men and angels. Because if they punish Achan now, down the road when people digest and memory gets old, how do we know that Achan, that God picked right, that, you know, 
that Aiken was forced into this confession, right? You, know, you could see 60 Minutes going nuts with something like this. So what did they do, actually? The officials were sent to dig up the floor of the tent so that we pull the actual evidence out and say, yep, he buried the stuff, he's got it here. And we can show all the people of Israel that Achan had the goods that he was accused of having. So that now, when judgment is executed, the people understand that there's a proper grounds. This was the crime that God set the penalty for. We've suffered a penalty and a defeat, 36 people killed. Here's the guy that's responsible for our 36 deaths. We have the proof so that we don't have to just blindly accept a casted lot. And now the full community can say, you're no longer part of us. And taken a stone and burned and so forth. We can act. And so, that, so you have all three phases of judgment as an object lesson in Aiken's story. It makes a great story to teach the whole judgment process in one man's experience. Um, now, of course, Aiken didn't repent, right? Yeah, and it was a forced confession, right? You know, because there's a point where the evidence is so strong you have to admit you got me, but that doesn't mean you're sorry for it. And that's basically where Aiken was. Now, let's go back to the beginning of this story, though, because this is the first blessing I want to bring out. Why didn't Joshua just start running the process immediately? Why did they wait overnight and announce, tomorrow we're going to do all this stuff, and then let it sit and percolate? Why wait? Why not just get started with the investigation and judgment? I think it's precisely to give Achan time to repent, to think, for the Holy Spirit to work on him. God has set up a judgment process designed not to destroy, but to call to repentance, to give time for repentance. And it's all over our New Testament. And today's sermon with Elder Wilson, in Acts there, right, he has appointed a day in which he shall judge the world. And all over the New Testament, there is a day in which he shall, in that day when my God judges, it's always what tense? Future. The New Testament writers do not see the judgment as yet started. It is a future eschatological day. And if I can take a short tangent here, those who struggle with the 1844 date, whether or not you agree with the date, 1844 was certainly in the future for Peter and Paul, John and so forth, who were all announcing this future judgment. Hasn't started yet. It's somewhere. There is a day coming. So 1844 fits that futureness of all of their predictions. And like Aiken, 
The day of judgment is certain. It's coming. Achan was given a time tomorrow morning. New Testament didn't tell you exactly when, but it says it's coming. It's coming. It's certain. There's a day when God is going to judge, make things right, etc., etc. Future, 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 future. And then suddenly, in Revelation 14, an angel flies in the midst of heaven and suddenly it's no longer the hour of judgment will come. It is suddenly now the hour of judgment has come. But all of that will come, will come, will come. Accountability is certain. You're going to be judged. You're going to be evaluated. That's all like Achan designed to give us space to say, yep, God, I got a problem. I need to repent. I need your help, etc. So the first blessing of the investigative judgment is this chance to repent. God desires repentance and mercy, not punishment. God desires correction, not destruction. And hence in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? What's the implied answer? No, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. So God says, I'm going to hold accountable. You're not going to get away with it, but I really want you to be fixed, not destroyed. So everything is about giving warning so that we have the opportunity to repent. It's like taking a class and, you know, final exam is coming. But folks, here's the notes with all the answers. All you got to do is show up at the exam with the right stuff. And then we get a few students who say, I'm smart enough, I don't need the exam. And then they wonder why they flunked. So the judgment is good news because it's designed to give us space to repent. And I love the Aiken story. Now, to pull from my sermon, because you guys will be asking me about Aiken head. I use the term Aiken head, referring to him, to refer to the unrepentant mind. When you don't want to repent, when you want to hide your sins and not be forthright with God, you have an Aiken head. And so God help us to get rid of our Aiken heads and get a Christ head instead. We need to move to the second blessing because my enemy is ticking. I had to give a PTSD flashback to my students here. The second blessing of the judgment is more tied to the great controversy theme, and it's tied to a Sabbath school question we had this morning. That powerful, compelling, moving question where was God when I was sexually abused? Why didn't he protect me? Daniel 7 and 8, especially 7, the judgment scene we have, the history laid out with this little horn, and this little horn wars against the saints and prevails over them and wears out the saints for the time, two times, etc., which we understand is 1,260 years. 
prophecy, Daniel and Revelation consistently depict God's people as having a rough time in this world, being unjustly treated, being worn out, warred against, prevailed over, etc., etc., etc. The question is, what gives you hope when you're one of those saints at year 736 and you're getting worn out and there's 500 plus years to go? You can feel very, very hopeless. And that, that dilemma or tension is expressed in Revelation 6 by the souls under the altar who were worn out by the beast and gave their lives, murdered, slain by the sword unjustly. He opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar, the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God. Certainly that's not a good reason to be executed, right? And you're being executed and you're dying. And it looks like the beast is winning. What did Hebrews say? These all died in faith, what? Not having received. That's why it was in faith. But as they were dying, they didn't say, Oh God, you ripped me off, you stinking liar. They died still believing God had a way to fulfill the promise even as they slipped into unconsciousness. But still, like Abel's blood crying from the ground, how long until you judge and avenge? Whoa, it's not popular to talk about God avenging today. And yet these saints, these martyrs, are depicted as asking God, when are you going to get even for the injustice done to us? His answer was, wait a little longer. You see, we are addressing here the issue of suffering injustice, which you are powerless to get a solution to. Some injustice we can get solution to through our family, right? Child comes to the parents, parent settles it, hopefully. Your neighbor treats you unjustly, you may end up going to court, calling the police, but the issue can be settled. But I suspect that the young person who asked that question this morning, who sent that question in, where was God when I was sexually abused? Was it by the father? I can't remember if they named the, the person. But by this elder person. There's a very good chance that that person is probably 25 to 35. And there's a very good chance that the person who abused them is dead. So you can't call the police. All right, I've had girls, a couple of girls at times in my office. One of them was a more mature student. She was molested by a 60-plus-year-old elder. 
Now she's coming to school at age 40 and he's dead. And there ain't nothing she can do about it. And this, I've been wronged and there's no solution is eating away at her soul and her mental health. I would say God was with her, but because God honors free choice, he doesn't solve it now in the middle of the act. Where does he solve it? In the investigative judgment. Because the answer to the little horn wearing out the saints is, but the court shall sit in judgment. It gets taken to court. And when you're the victim of oppression and your oppressor gets taken to court, that's good news. Oh, I feel a sermon coming on. The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed at the end and the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints. Till the ancients of days came and judgment was given unto the saints. Daniel 7, 22. Of oh, the Most High, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The second blessing of the investigative judgment is the hope that unresolved justice will be settled. And it will be settled one of two ways. The perpetrator will either be raised and stand before the bar of justice and answer Let's go back the other night, a day here, Thursday, when I was talking about Joseph Fritzl. For those of you who have forgotten who he is, he was the Austrian man around 70 years old who locked up his daughter in a basement dungeon at age 18 and she stayed there for 24 years, and he fathered seven children by her. When he finally was caught and she was delivered, she was at the court. To help her mental health, they did the depositions privately and played the videotape. Before walking into that courtroom, I'm innocent, this is a bunch of fabricated nonsense, yada da da da. But boy, when he walked into the courtroom, he had a notebook with him. And I'll use this piece of paper like the notebook. He came walking in like this. And the cameras, and they have pictures of him sitting up in front, and he knows the camera's over here, so he's kind of trying to do like this. Oh, in his mugshots, he's all... But it's different to sit before a mugshot camera than before a judge. Right? Why this all of a sudden, covering the face and the eyes? I don't want people to see me. Her testimony was so damning, not to mention that when you have six living children that you can DNA match in the whole nine yards. 
By the time the testimony ended, he changed his plea from not guilty to guilty of everything. Was that cathartic and therapeutic for Elizabeth? Absolutely. There is something healing to the victim to see the oppressor have to take responsibility and be unable to escape. And God gives this as a healing mechanism for those unrequited justice issues. Folks, if you don't have hope of justice, you can go crazy, quite literally. Investigative judgment is one of the biggest mental health tools we have as Seventh-day Adventists because it gives us hope of justice. Even when they seem to be beyond reach, like the person at year 736. And we, if need be, can die in hope. I remember Dwight Nelson preached on this. He talked about, quote, the third trial of O.J. Simpson. This is before he had his third trial for a different crime. But remember, he was tried for the murder and acquitted. And so then it went to a civil court, and it was tried, and he was convicted. But he really didn't pay anything because the way he had his finances structured, they couldn't touch him. And Dwight preached, O.J.'s got a third trial coming, and this one's going to get it right, and he won't be able to escape. And if a person has been victimized and they see their oppressor as beyond reach, beyond, too powerful, and suddenly now they appear before the throne of God and there's no escape and their power is broken, that is therapeutic to their victim. There is justice. The other way that God solves that justice problem is through the Holy Spirit. If that perpetrator responds to the Holy Spirit and repents and transfers the sin to Christ, then through the death of Christ the justice issue was taken. But then that person died and became a new creature. And if they died and became a new creature, I would have expected them to do something to confess to the victim and say, I was wrong, etc., etc. But perhaps the victim died in an accident or something, right? I mean, imagine Paul's reaction, correction, Stephen's reaction when he finds Paul in heaven. Because what's the last thing he saw Paul doing? Holding his coat so people could kill him holding their coat so people could kill him. Think Stephen might have a few questions? But when Stephen finds out about Paul's conversion and how Paul was used of God to build the church, do you think he'll be happy that the justice issue was solved? Yes. So this is a tremendously practical... I've had several students with issues such as sexual abuse find tremendous step forward in the healing process when they have hope that the person that they're powerless to deal with doesn't get away with it. It will get dealt with. 
Now there are other counseling tools that help them deal with communications and other issues, but this is a major spiritual asset. It's part of the Day of Atonement because it's part of the judgment. Let's go back now to that how long because there's a third issue now. How long till you do this? Not only do the souls under the altar have a sense of how long, but when we go to Revelation 18 and 19, when God starts raining the judgments down on the harlot, the reaction of the heavenly host tells you that they've been thinking the question, how long? In verse 4, we start a long quote authored by a voice from heaven. We're not told whose voice, just a voice from heaven. Clearly one of the good guys, though. Whether it's God's voice or an angel's voice, it appears to be one of the two. Picking a few excerpts out, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double. This is a creature calling on God to do something to the harlot for how she's treated the saints unjustly. <clears throat> this is the equivalent of how long. <clears throat> Pardon me for just a moment. while I wet my whistle. Pay her back. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, <clears throat> and apostles and prophets. Oh, today I hear that it's a sign of spiritual superiority if you don't want retributive justice. Oh, I don't want them to be punished. I just... We create mental illness by denying the God-given desire for justice. I wrote an article in ministry a couple of years ago about dying you shall die in Genesis and showed how it's in a legal setting. Had a pastor from somewhere in the U.S. very unhappy because God doesn't punish or destroy, you know. This is an immature viewpoint to, you know, we need to outgrow this childish, punitive. I asked him, these heavenly nations, keep going to chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and judge, and he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Here's a heavenly host saying, praise God, he's finally doing something. <clears throat> are they immature? These are beings in either translated to heaven or have been living there all their life. I'm not convinced that's an immature viewpoint. 
And I suspect this great multitude may include our angels. Before men and angels, right? Verse 4, the 24 elders. Well, let's go to verse 3. This loud multitude. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped the God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. In other words, we agree. Are the four living creatures immature? Got an issue here, right? What's the point? God created free will beings to appreciate justice. And when leadership doesn't act justly, what do free will moral beings want to do? They want to get rid of the unjust leader and get someone they can trust, right? To be right. I'd like to suggest to you that if God does not conduct the judgment, and if God does not punish sin, it has catastrophic events in the attitudes of the rest of the free will universe because it violates their sense of justice. And we see that demonstrated regularly. Think back a few years. We've had riots over perceived injustice by police, right? People say, if the police are going to act that way, and they go nuts. The final blessing of judgment is that it unifies the universe. Now, to illustrate this justice issue, I like the story with involving David, Absalom, and Joab. Remember that Absalom revolts against David. David had to flee. Absalom is set up as king. David regroups, launches a campaign, and his orders are, capture him, make sure you don't kill him. David, love, and I use love in the human sense, not in the agape sense, warped his judgment. Joab knew that if you don't do away with Absalom, he's going to keep plotting. So when he finds him hanging from the tree, he took care of the issue. How does David respond? He starts mourning, oh, my son Absalom, I wish it was me, not you, da 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 da, da. And modern man says, oh, he loved his son so much. And people depict God as sitting and sobbing on his throne when the wicked die in the fire. After a short season of time, who came in to talk to David? Joab, and what did he have to say? 
He said, we all risked our necks to save you from this guy. Because had he won, you'd be dead. We risked our necks for you, and by sobbing over this guy and making a public lamentation, you are insulting our support of you. And if you don't quit this crying and say thank you for putting your neck on the line, by tomorrow morning you're not going to have a kingdom. And I think that's a great illustration. If God doesn't act in justice and take care of the problem with retributive punishment, he's got a whole universe who said, we've laid our necks on the line for you and now you go screw up. We're out of here. The judgment is what solidifies the universe into unity that God is right, that God is fair, that God is merciful, loving, and worthy to be served and worshipped. It's not just about you and me. The Day of Atonement is the process that God sets up to honor his faithful by solving the justice issues and thus uniting the universe that God does know what he's doing. Like the story of Achan, at that point, God can take full action with the support of his universe. They're saying, yes, get on with it. We agree, this is the right time. And there won't be a cosmic 60 minutes a millennium later saying it was messed up. Our faith during trial in God's just judgment declares to the cosmic community that there is no need to abandon hope that God is good, God is right, and God deserves to reign. And this is the great anger management tool of Paul and Jesus, right? Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God and his appointed agencies. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The judgment of God in the Day of Atonement process and the ensuing judgments that come out of that finish uniting a universe that has faced the greatest challenge ever known in history. God can solve that problem without you and without me. He's not a needy God. But he makes use of us like he did Job to send a message of encouragement to the rest of the universe who don't suffer our afflictions, that they can keep trusting their God that all is well as they watch the dynamic unfold. I think oh, for them it was settled at the cross. Now it's icing on the cake. You know, we're the ones still ironing it out. But we have a small part to play in that cosmic theater 
as we face judgment, asking God to break our self-deception so that we can be one of those saints whom he's vindicating and that we have the hope that the insults and persecution and harassment that we may suffer for following Jesus has been noted, will be addressed, and we know who wins in the end. Day of Atonement is solemn news because of my self-deception and because those I love and cherish are also having their destiny decided. But it's good news in that this is how God sin-proofs the universe and demonstrates to men and angels his goodness and his character. May we be willing to be a small part in the hand of God for him to vindicate his name before the universe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us. Help us take the judgment with responsibility, not flippantly, not cockily, and yet with humble assurance that as long as we're willing to have nothing between us and seek you to reveal the hidden issues, that we will be welcomed, forgiven, changed, and cleansed. Help us rightly represent you in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let God's people say. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.